from the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Lizzie Watson, your host for this episode. For some of us, simply living in our bodies is a daily act against oppression, against marginalization, criminalization, and hate. This work is exhausting. Most justice work is. That's why finding what brings us joy is so central to both our individual and our collective liberation. While seemingly simple, when put in practice, pleasure can be revolutionary. This is the idea that Adrienne Marie Brown puts forth in her book, Pleasure Activism, The Politics of Feeling Good. Taking inspiration from Black feminist writers like Audre Lorde and Octavia Butler, the author, activist, and doula demonstrates how we can tap into our desire to organize against depression. Adrian's work is a gift for so many who don't feel that pleasure is an accessible reality, including women, people of color, trans and non-binary folks, queer folks, disabled folks, and survivors of sexual violence. Adrian joins us today to share why finding pleasure should be centered in our justice work. Adrian, we are big fans. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Lizzie. The idea of talking about pleasure to the ACLU like realm is very cool to me. <laughs> I'm just like, yes, let's let's get it. Yeah, me and um, my colleagues have all been reading your book, and we're like, yes, we need this. Yes, <laughs> so we, you do. There are a lot of ACLUers <laughs> that um, will be will be listening to this one. I love and that. taking notes. Good. So I want to go deep on the pleasure and the activism pieces separately, but I thought we could start with the kind of elevator pitch first. So kind of inform our listeners of the destination before we go on the journey, so to speak. That's great. So what is pleasure activism? So the nutshell of pleasure activism is really how do we make justice and liberation the most pleasurable activities we can engage in? And how do we imbue the pleasurable things that we do in our lives with justice and liberation? (laughs) And a lot of it is about reclaiming our right to feel pleasure for those of us who have experienced oppression um, or those of us who are living inside of systems that are structured around us denying what we feel and just participating in the system and making it go and making it work. There's a lot of healing involved in pleasure activism, like learning to feel satisfied and content in your life as it is right now. What do you mean when you say pleasure? So from the cover of the book alone, (laughs) we know you aren't discounting (laughs) sexual pleasure. Right. Um, And I want to talk more about that for sure. But we also aren't just talking about sexual pleasure here. There's a lot of different kinds of pleasure talked about. So what do you think, what do you want people to be thinking about when you talk about pleasure? When I talk about pleasure, I mean happiness, I mean satisfaction, I mean contentment, I mean joy. So the book is very sex heavy, but it's also drugs. (laughs) It's also um, dancing. It's also fashion. Um, I have a a beautiful interview in there with a friend of mine, Alana Devich-Cyril, who was dying from cancer when I when I was able to speak with her, and she passed a few months later. Um, and it's it, it, this idea that like no matter what condition we are in, there's a way that pleasure is not only available to us, but can make it more possible to live in our lives and to keep moving towards a future. You start to realize that all of life has that potential for for deep erotic aliveness, like really feeling that throughout your system. And I think the only other thing I want to emphasize is the satisfaction part of pleasure as I, as I talk about it. Um, 
we live inside of an economic system in capitalism that is really about not feeling satisfied. Because if you're not satisfied, you'll keep purchasing, you'll keep looking, you'll keep buying, you'll keep investing into like, make me more beautiful. So inside of that realm, how do we experience viscerally what it means to be satisfied? And I had a teacher, Stacey Haynes, um, in my somatics journey, ask the question, are you satisfiable? And I both felt it on an individual level, like, can I be satisfied? Or I can think of it as a collective question, right? For Black people, for queer people, for disabled people, for immigrants, like, are we satisfiable? What is What would satisfaction actually look like? What is a satisfying justice? And I think there's something about feeling satisfaction in the body that enables us to feel satisfaction in the world. Mm, that is so right. So you you touched on this a little bit. We know that orgasms are psychologically and physiologically beneficial. And I think you said as an, <laughs> orgas- an orgasm a day keeps the doctor away. But how does that <laughs> translate to being communally better? Well, you know, I will say there's something about knowing that you can, on your own, in a very simple way, you can actually feel a complete satisfaction and a complete um, surrender to your own pleasure. There's something there that gives you a power that no one else can touch. That's what I've experienced in my life. Um, You know, as I was fat from very early in my life, and it was amazing to me how I could witness, even though I I was feeling it, but I could also witness how the world was telling me I was an undesirable person and not deserving of pleasure, right? And my body was able to tell me something else that disrupted that programming. You don't need anyone else's approval to feel the miracle of your body and how every part of you is all interconnected and all of it can flood with sensation. That's not, you can access that. And so I know you know, people have all kinds of issues with reaching orgasm, but I think the the capacity to sense pleasure in the body, that feels like something that everyone can access. And it might look differently, you know, it might look like receiving a um, hand massage or a foot massage or getting your nails done. I also think on this collective level, there's a sense of, of what is it we're aiming for and how do we know when we achieved it, right? One of the things I was saying um, this past year is like, we want to avoid the the fake orgasm of policy that we can often be offered, right? It's like, well, here's something that doesn't satisfy any of your needs, <laughs> um, you know, but it has some of the language that you wanted or whatever. And I'm like, I think once you know what a real orgasm is like, you don't want to fake that. And I think we need the same level of standards in our policy that we we get actually satisfying policies actually satisfying results to our organizing that meet the real and visceral needs of our people. Ah, oh, that is so great and and powerful to to think about. So, you touched on this a little bit in your in your last answer, but how do you think that societal expectations kind of get in the way of us experiencing pleasure? Yeah. Of, and I guess individually or communally? And like, do we have to, like, is it essential that we acknowledge what the societal pressures are so that we can overcome them? Or I would say my social location is as a Black, fat, queer um, woman who grew up wearing glasses, is a military kid, moving all the time. And in my experience, it would be easy for me to conclude that I don't fit, I don't check the boxes of what society deems worthy, 
of, you know, as a human, right? Period. If you're mm-hmm. black, it's like <laughs> you are less than, and then add all those other things. And it just keeps um, whittling away at what can be your full humanity. There's no accident to how society is structured. Those those places where oppression has been the most intense, there's a purpose behind it, right? It benefits this nation, has benefited this nation greatly to have this idea of Black people as less than human who can be subservient and who can be put into work, into labor that no one else wants to do. You do need to be aware of what is the history of the place that you're in? What is the history of the body that you're in, of all the sociopolitical ideas that people have about your body and its worthiness, understanding that they're not permanent. For Black people, I always say there's a time before this trauma. There's a time for all of our peoples that predates the trauma and the colonization and the genocides and all of it. There's something that's before that. And it's culture, it's tribe, it's family, it's safety, it's figuring out a relationship with the earth. And especially as I live more and more into my own liberated life, I'm like, I want to set the expectation for every Black girl and every fat girl and every queer girl and every person who's experienced oppression and everyone who's got disabilities, everyone, that your life can be deeply satisfying and you can feel desired and wanted and safe and kept and protected. All of that can can exist right now today. It's not some far off vision if we just, you know, because I think also I come from a movement background and, you know, I think this last period of history, this last seven, eight years has been defined by largely Black women stepping forward and saying, no, right now today, Black Lives Matter. And in this moment, me too. We're not going to let this this kind of harm continue. It's like, this is it, you know? And that I find very thrilling. And I think that that kind of direct right now demand for our satisfaction politically comes from embodied liberation. You know, for a while, your life might be defined by what your parents deem successful, by what your teachers tell you is a success. And then the world tells you if you behave a certain way, then you'll feel satisfied. But that isn't what a lot of people actually experience. Um, You get to those places, you get to some of those places and you're like, this isn't it. That's because it's not true to what you're actually meant to do here. And I think a lot more people are meant to be creators. I think a lot more people are meant to be in community service. And I long for that. Like that's kind of the future I see is one in which there's less urgency, less rush, less sense of self-importance and more justice, more care, more love, more satisfaction. Right. But I feel like there's so many, um, like there's so many concepts in your book that I think would be like new to readers. And one of the things you mentioned as uh, an inspiration was this harm reduction theory. So I was first introduced to this concept in my work providing legal services for the homeless uh, in the East Bay. But for those less familiar with the concept of harm reduction, can you explain what it is and how it inspired you here? Oh, yeah. So I was a little baby Adrian. I got um, hired at a place called the Harm Reduction Coalition. And the idea of harm reduction is mostly focused on active drug users and sex workers. And the idea of harm reduction is how do we help people reduce those harms in their lives if they are not in a place where abstinence feels possible? 
the sex working piece is also it always really fascinating to me. You know, I was taught by sex workers that are like, sex work will end when capitalism ends, <laughs> because mm-hmm. until then the imbalance is going to be so great that this will always be of, of value. So it gives you sort of this analysis that when people are engaging in sex work or when people are engaging in active drug use, there's usually a story behind that. There's something that led to that place or that led to that feeling like the solution that they needed. And instead of dehumanizing them, demoralizing them and stripping them of agency, harm reduction says, I don't sit in a place of judgment towards you. You have agency. And how do we want to move through this? Understand that society is hard. And there are days in which this path of coping might feel much more appealing than this other path of trying to stay sober and struggle through all the oppression that you're dealing with. So it's a very (laughs) reality-based approach or framework. Good organizers are always partnering with the community to help them identify and get what they want. And sometimes we have to have harm reduction strategies at a big political level. Most of the electoral process at this point is a harm reduction strategy writ large. I really wanted you to talk about it because I think it's one of those things that like once you start thinking about it that way, you're like, actually, this can be used in a lot of different ways, especially when you're trying to think about culture shift. Exactly. Like when you're you're trying to think about like how to shift a community's sense of themselves, harm reduction is actually a really beautiful way to do that, right? Because it's like, instead of entering with this idea that there are good people and bad people (laughs) and the good people deserve care and attention and resources, this is like, actually everyone deserves care and attention and resources. And those people who you feel aversion to, they're often the ones that society has already let slip through so many cracks when I was in my 20s working there, I was like, everyone was doing drugs, right? But the people who were getting caught and shamed for it were largely black and brown communities. It just blows your mind to recognize like everyone's engaging in the same behavior, but the racial dynamics of our country shape who gets punished for it. And once that clicks into place, you're just like, oh, everyone needs this comfort. Yes. Um, thank you for that. Um Can we talk about Black joy for a moment? Always. (laughs) Um, So I will say I actually tend to be a little skeptical when anyone brings up like Black joy as a concept. (laughs) Like I really feel Mm -hmm. the white gaze (laughs) coming in. But Mm -hmm. I wasn't thinking about that at all when reading your book. And maybe it's because you do such a good job centering pleasure, which you're clear is just Uh not the same for everyone. And it's, it's very individualized. And also what's pleasurable for the individual changes over time. But what do you see as the connection between Black joy, Black pleasure, and Black liberation? Mm -hmm. I love this question, Lizzie, because for me, I think Black joy is the survival technology that has kept us alive this long in the conditions of the U.S. experiment. So I say that because I'm like, if you really look at what we were going through there was, there's definitely periods of our history where there's not a reason to live. There's not a reason to keep going. There's not a reason to even try to form connections because they're going to be broken. They're going to be taken from you. You're going to be punished, tortured. Um, Your life is not of value to the people who have power over your safety and your well-being. That's devastating. That's a devastating condition to be in. And even now, Black and brown people make up the majority of those who are, are are being locked up and locked up and locked up and sentenced in these eternal um, sentences, right? So 
in those conditions, what helps us keep going? We, going back through the archives, find that we were singing incredible songs, that we were creating sacred spaces, sometimes in the middle of the night to go gather and be with each other and find a way to be in some worship, in some surrender to each other, to the universe, to God. We were always finding ways to experience, even in the smallest ways, some joy. And I think what's happened, as, you know, if you watch sort of along the path of liberation, is Black culture, our joy expressed as music, expressed as you know, television expressed as writing, expressed as basketball playing or whatever it is, our culture takes the center of of every space it lands in. And I think it's because that joy is connected to that liberation, right? It's it's a irresistible force when you witness that. When you're like, wow, like after everything we've been through, we made this and it sounds this beautiful. It sounds this good. It I think is the magic. You know, if there's like one magical force that means that we can survive when nothing else would keep us going. And this seems consistent across communities. So like I mentioned Dallas Goldtooth, but when I talked to him about how do indigenous communities keep going in the wake of this genocidal attempt to remove them um, from power and from their land and from everything else, I'm like, how do you continue? It's like laughter. Laughter is a big part of it. Like we fight, we struggle, we do all that, but like we tell hilarious stories, we tell excellent jokes and we we keep each other laughing. It's also one of the things that we can practice that doesn't need a resource other than ourselves. One of the signs of freedom to me is that we can be spontaneous. We can safely be spontaneous. It's like I can take an action that's unexpected and the police are not gonna shoot me for it. And mm-hmm. I think that in the Black Lives Matter movement and the big global protests that have gone on, we've seen those moments of Black spontaneity, of, you know, taking a street and dancing, taking a street and singing together, holding hands, being in ritual. And some of those acts were thought out, but a lot of it is like the spontaneity of of Black joy that emerges when we're together feeling free. Wow. It's almost like you you find those, those are like moments of liberation. Um, and they're which, right like, here. Yeah, help to right? get you. Yeah, to help yeah. you get you through. To be like, this could be, this could be all the time. Like we could feel secure all the time, right? Yes. yes. Um, and have a party in the park or our backyard, <laughs> like you know. So our inspiration for bringing you on the podcast was that we wanted to talk about something that was joyful and accessible to a wide swath of women, regardless of race, class, sexuality, gender identity, economic status, all the things that separate us. Mm -hmm. So how do you think women in particular are separated from pleasure? And perhaps more importantly, like how do you reconnect with it? Mm. You know, it's it's interesting because as we've moved through forward in history to this present moment, there's often still that sense of like men have more easy access to power, easy access to resource, direct relationship to success. And we're still working at a percentage of what they're able to access, right? We have to move through them. You have to catch the right man's attention in order to advance, right? And so I think part of what the movement that women have been in for a long time now is this reclamation of the whole self and 
reclamation of the whole self includes that pleasure sensibility. And for Black women in particular, we were not brought to this country to experience any pleasure. And we were brought here to bear children and do labor. And if you couldn't do one or the other of those, you were disposed of, you were sold, you were gotten rid of. And it takes a lot to recover from that. I don't think we're even close to recovering from that. And I think that our acts of agency in our body now, our fight for reproductive justice, um, our fight against the prison industrial complex, our fight for fair wages in the workplace, all of those struggles are interconnected at the root because it's all about fundamentally, we want what anyone has. We don't want to be lesser in any of these categories. And part of the healing from that trauma of what we were brought here to do is being able to have the full agency of our lives now. You know, I often think about it as a paying back. You know, I have certain ancestors in my life, personal ancestors and ancestors of my work lineage. And right now in my life, you know, when I have a big moment of success or a moment of pleasure, I'll pay it back. <laughs> you know, I'll think of Harriet Tubman, right? I'm just like, okay, like you did so much work. And what was the pleasure you got to experience? Here's a moment of pleasure. I know that I have more access to it now because of the labor of women like her. Um, but I want us to think about pleasure for our grandmothers. You know, I don't think that there's a time cap on it. I love talking to older women who are like, wait, my clitoris still works. Like everything is still functioning. It's <laughs> still going strong here. You know, um, actually a lot of women, our full sexual blossoming takes longer because we're having to heal through all the socialization and messaging that tells us we're not desirable or deserving of, of love and attention and abundant, receiving abundance. Like it's just such a, it's fascinating to me. To, to see how it plays out. And again, when I think of vision, I think of a future in which like that's no longer the story. I really appreciate and like want to highlight the real breadth of experiences that you get in the book. And I just like, you know, that it included trans folks and disabled folks and people that have experienced not just ancestral trauma, but trauma, including, you know, child abuse and really difficult, really difficult scenarios um, that make it hard for people to connect or reconnect with pleasure. And there were multiple people that talked about how they survived before they thrived in a very, like, concrete way. Yes. And why yeah. did you feel it was important to include these types of journeys in the book? I thought it was important because I, for me, pleasure activism is not light work. You know, it's not necessarily fun work. <laughs> and I think people think that often. They're like, ooh, pleasure, sex dungeon, yay. You know, it's just going to be something like that. And I'm like, pleasure, it's actually so difficult to access. Almost everything is structured to keep us from accessing it. And what I wanted to show people was, here's just some of the landscape of obstacles and how people have been overcoming those obstacles in order to rediscover themselves. And child sexual abuse, you know, Amita Swadin has a piece in there that is an outstanding piece about what it, what, what was able to give them pleasure when they were young and they were still in the context of being abused, but they 
were also alive and forming friendships in school and trying to figure out life. And it it really dives into that, right? And for me, it felt so important to include include stories like that, include stories like from my friends Alta and Idalise, who are above 60 years old, and talking about what does it look like to feel pleasure? Because we're told that when we get older, when we're no longer able to reproduce necessarily, that it's like our sexual potential and our pleasure potential falls away. It's like, that's not true at all. Again, this is an obstacle to overcome so that you can access what is yours, your right, already in your body waiting for you. Sometimes you do have to have that politicization. Like someone has to look at you and be like, hey, you could be freer than you are right now. And there's a reason, there's a history, and there's all these systems that dance together to create, you know, racial capitalism and patriarchy and homophobia. And, you know, it's it's institutionalized into your church and your school and your family. And it's not an accident that you think you're a mistake, but the accident is that thought and not you. And, and that just unlocks so many things, you know, this, this other way of being, which is we live on a biodiverse planet where the healthiest ecosystems have the most divergence, right? The most ways of being concurrently. And our species is unique in that we keep trying to deny that multiplicity of ways of being and try to find uniformity and make people be obedient to something that's not necessarily what's welling up inside of them. <laughs> so I get really excited by this idea that in your lifetime, you can actually make this journey. And the more people who make that journey, the stronger I think our movements become and the stronger change, like the potential for change becomes because you've experienced it in your own self and your own life. Hopefully what people get from listening to this interview is like, there are ways that you, like concrete things you can do to help get yourself. Like you might think there's all these barriers that exist, but you're like, okay, here's something you can do. Look in the mirror and get turned on by yourself. Exactly. (laughs) Masturbate. Like here are some things that you can do. How did you think about um, what tasks you wanted to put in and like, were the, are those the most important tasks to liberation or an easy starting point? Well, one of the things that I wanted to be true to in the book, it, there's a lot about authenticity that feels important to, to me when it comes to pleasure and satisfaction. We live in a very performative society, and I think it's very hard to be a performance and also be satisfied. We give an amazing performance that's not ourselves, and then we just feel out of alignment because it's like no one actually knows me. (laughs) And what we want deeply is to be known. And one place we can start is knowing ourselves. So when I offer anything in the book as a practice, it's something I practiced, right? And that was how the book started. And I think it helps to give people many paths, many ways to enter because there's stuff that's like... You know, I can imagine someone being like, I'm not doing self-pornography, but they might be willing to write themselves a love poem, right? A poem about what they love about themselves, what they find desirable about themselves. So I wanted to give people like a lot of different entries. And I also wanted to be a little bit of a provocateur um, for people's personal journeys. So, you know, push myself. I had to really push myself out of my own comfort zone. But when it felt a little uncomfortable to me, I recognized, I was like, oh, that's an edge where society makes me feel like I should be embarrassed about something that brings me pleasure. I'm probably not the only one. And what I want to do is 
increase the culture by which we help each other out with these intimate questions of reclaiming our bodies and reclaiming our agency over our lives and reclaiming the possibility of satisfaction. So I I have to ask you this last question, otherwise they're never going to let me pick someone to be on the podcast again. So for... It sounds like a lot of this starts kind of in the individual space mm-hmm. um, or with the individual and thinking about how you approach your own life. But if our listeners were going to go out and kind of try to bring about the culture shift yes. that we are talking about here, what do they do? What should they yes. do? Yes. Oh, I've got you. Um Two things leap to mind. So the first thing is building community around what you love. And in because it's community built around what you love, you're much more likely to do all the work of being accountable to that space because you have a shared love of something at the center of it. And that thing you love might be a place. It might be an activity. It might be a people, right? It might be a moment in history. It might be a fashion. It might be something else, but you find that. And it can be multiple things. Um, and then the second thing is wherever you are, bring pleasure into that space, find ways to bring it in. And when I was doing a bunch of facilitation, I would bring pleasure in. Every time we made a decision, we would have a dance break, you know, just be like, we just did this. Like we made a decision and it may have been a small decision, like where to order lunch from, but we made it. (laughs) Okay. And this is a group (laughs) of very different people. And we did this. So it's time to put on some Mary J. Blige and dance. And if we can order lunch, we can do anything, right? We can come, <laughs> overcome our differences and say what we really want and we can compromise and get it done, right? And at a collective level, we really need to learn how to celebrate our wins, celebrate our lessons. Like we're always learning, we're always advancing, even when it looks like a loss, even when it looks like a setback. You know, I look back at this phase of 45's presidency. And I'm like, that could feel like a massive loss, but it's also something we can celebrate as a clear lesson. Like we knew this, we knew there would be a massive backlash to the first black president. It's not actually surprising if we, if we really think it through, right? So what did we learn from this and how are we going to use that as we take our next advances, right? If we take our advances and we understand what the backlash can be, we can strategize for it. That's actually a great lesson. That's a good victory. Let's celebrate it. Bring culture in, bring pleasure in, and that idea of like, how could we make this experience of justice and liberation more pleasurable? Usually the answers involve food and music, often children, (laughs) but each community has to figure that out themselves. That is such great advice. Thank you. Thank you so much for doing this. I've so enjoyed this conversation. Thank you and thank all your colleagues for thinking of me. And thanks for great questions about this text. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcast and rate and review the show. We really appreciate your feedback. Until next week, try to walk on the sunny side of the street. <laughs>